0: If you have a question or you want to chime in with with an idea or something, please tap request to speak. We'd love to talk to you and answer any questions you have. Not about tax evasion though. Anything else?
1: <laughs> Hi, I'm Gina Trapani and you're listening to the Postlight podcast. A few weeks ago, we hosted our very first Twitter space. Postlight's president, Chris Lasaco, Postlight's head of digital strategy, Michael Shane, and I tackled the topic, how to get C-level buy-in for large technology investments. In our work with clients, we have a lot of experience in this area, and we want to share a replay of that conversation with you here today. Enjoy. Hi, I guess we're doing this thing.
2: It's a pretty cool interface, I have to say. As just a sort of product enthusiast to look yes. at how this is implemented it's really nice it is very nice and like really well done yeah
1: absolutely it's exciting to see faces showing up hi everybody so we all work for a digital product firm based in new york city union square area michael and chris and i are all based here in new york city we we talk to one another all day long about really exciting topics like how to get c-level buy-in and budget for large tech investments <laughs> because that's what we do it is what we do it truly is. No, I mean, I'm actually excited, very excited about this topic because, you know, it's the, it's the human side. It's the human side of the work, which I enjoy as much as I do the software side.
2: So, Chris, who are you? Thank you, Michael. I'm Chris. I'm the president of the firm. I work very closely with Gina to uh, chart the path of growth for this exploding young agency. We're not young anymore. We're six years old. But this uh, agency that has grown, we, we're passing 120 people. And we do, you know, Postlight is a full service strategy design and development shop. We partner with companies large and small to build big, cool things on the internet. And just like Gina was saying, you know, we talk to each other constantly about how do we both position ourselves really well, you know, with the people who can write the checks, but also, and maybe just as importantly, or more importantly, help stakeholders within these large orgs figure out how to make their case and how to get their buy-in across a group of what is very often a wide variety of stakeholders. And that's no easy feat. I mean, it's probably harder than the software part, to be honest. So we, we have a bunch of thoughts that you know we always go back and forth on,
0: and I'm excited to share them. But Michael, tell the people who you are and how you fit into this, this puzzle. I'm Michael Shane, hi everybody. I'm part of the senior leadership team at Postlight because I lead the digital strategy team. And among other things, digital strategy at Postlight works with all of our new clients and all of our potential clients, often in many cases, trying to help them get the money or the permission or the buy-in or the support that they need to go and do the thing that, that they know in their heart of hearts that they need to do in order for their team, their business to succeed. We are often meeting clients who have really big responsibilities, really big goals and big dreams, personal and professional, but they don't have authority. They have responsibility, but they don't have authority. And certainly that can be true when it comes to budgets. And that's something that we understand because the biggest thing that we in our world have in common with our clients is that we all have to get permission from someone else in order to succeed. The merits of the work, the merits of the idea are not enough by themselves in order to get the permission that you need to go and do the work. And we understand that in our relationships with our clients. And so we understand how to help them navigate those waters in their own organizations, because any technology project above a certain size is going to be transformational or disruptive. It's going to change things that have probably been the way they are for a really long time. And change is hard at every organization that has more than six people working there. And so navigating that with our clients is a huge part of, of what we do, because none of us can do anything until we get permission.
1: I want to paint a picture of the kind of like person, and I feel like these, these are the folks that are probably listening to this Twitter space, right? you got somebody who works at a big organization that is not digital focused, right, but it has a digital component, and they feel frustrated by the like old legacy system that's already in house or by the like possibility of a new line of business that could be so well served by just a great software platform, a great app. And that person like kind of becomes the, like, you know, they're typically like a digital native, a product leader, somebody who knows like what great UX is like and how much you know great UX can really just bring customers closer and bring constituents closer to to a brand or per- to a product and that person is like I see so clearly I know in my guts what needs to be done here we just have to get the right team to make the right investment into a just a great user experience, a great digital user experience. And they see it and they're like, I'm here, I'm gonna change the world, I'm gonna make this happen. And they, you know, go to their boss and they're like, I just see this, see this vision. I know that we can do so much more with technology. And their boss says, Fine, all right, you know, go out. You know, we don't have the resources here. Everybody's tied up, I got, you know, all this going on. Go out and go, you know, f- rustle up a few agencies, like talk to people, see, and then they come and they go out shopping. And this is typically where we come in the picture, right? And they come to us and they say, I've got this big vision, you know, I'm in this org, I'm gonna try to change this. I really want to build something that really matters. And then they you know, essentially collect you know, a set of proposals. And ours is, ours is usually one of them. We, we sit down with them. We listen. What's going on? Who are the players? What are you trying to do? What are your resources like? What's your culture like? How excited is anyone beyond you about this project inside your org? And we talk them through it. And we walk them through it. But then there comes that, that moment where they have to get that permission that you mentioned, Michael, to be able to do this thing. What happens then?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And it really depends on how experienced of a buyer, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. our partner is, right? If someone is maybe new to their role, or they're working at a place that doesn't often hire outside help, they may not have the experience with the kind of storytelling that you need in order to to get an executive or a boss or, or whoever, or a collaborator on board with bringing in a bunch of strangers Giving them a bunch of money and yeah. then going on an adventure with them. <laughs> yeah. You know, increasingly as the as Postlight has grown and evolved, we've found that more and more of our clients need this help because we are running into businesses that are in the midst of really exciting and demanding environments and extended moments of of transformation. And so we are often working with them to to do the storytelling that's that's necessary to get that permission. And that takes many forms. Sometimes it's live and completely extemporaneous and just talking to people and building relationships. Other times it's helping our partner actually generate the storytelling artifacts mm-hmm. that they need yeah. to make these arguments. But it has to be tailored for the audience. I mean, this is probably the biggest thing that I talk to our teams about, and that we, we also spend a lot of time talking with clients about this, trying to understand, okay, who do we need to persuade to support you? What motivates them? And that's and that's really important, right? Because yes, business, the success of the business on paper is certainly, you would hope, at least there is a minimum, but it's usually not the whole story and, th- and that's totally okay. And so we need to understand what kind of storytelling is going to be persuasive for the audience on the other side of the phone or the Zoom call or the slide deck or whatever it might be. So we need to think about what is gonna motivate executives or bosses to support an effort and then tailor the message for that. And that may mean that other activities are required to generate the proof that we need, whether it's landscape or competitive analysis or financial analysis, things of that nature. And we can go we, we can go into detail on what those activities sometimes look like, but the important thing is to tailor the message and to understand who you're talking to and how to navigate those conversations. And also what your timeline is. Like, is this one conversation? Is this three conversations? And clients don't always know what they need to ask and determine as, as part of the planning phase of an effort like this, for lack of a better term. And so we also have to be a guide there. Yeah. Michael,
2: I'd add... Your point about orienting around what are the decision points that the stakeholders are going to think about and how do you orient whatever your, you know, it's not even a pitch, whatever your presentation or your argument or your angle is around those decision points, I think is absolutely right. Something else that we've done historically, though, that works really well is when you go to that meeting, have the buy-in already from around the rest of the org before you even get to the decision makers. So then it's not like you're putting a pitch in front of them and you're saying, trust me, you need to go in this direction because of these external reasons, right? Market analysis or whatever. Often the reasons can be internal, right? I've already talked to the editorial team, for example, and they agree that this would streamline their flow and they would be able to get a two X return on publishing if we were able to invest in the CMS in this way. Or I've already spoken to sales. And they think this change will take their deals, their Q2 goal, up 25% based on some of these changes that we've been discussing. If you can quantify a real material impact to the team that's already here and then figure out how to translate that impact up to the executives who may not be as connected to the sort of on-the-ground day-to-day work that's happening but will be connected to the ultimate returns or the ultimate payoff, that you could potentially get, it makes that investment a thousand times easier because now they're connected to the business outcome as opposed to being connected to a story.
1: This is the key thing, right, about the story, about the message. There has to be a clear through line To the business outcome, right? What is the return on this investment going to be? I mean, this is what I I can complain about execs now because I because I am one and actually, Chris, you turn to me and say when we're, you know, noodling over decision, you will often turn to me and say like, like, what is the outcome for the business? Like, let's let's focus around that this is what execs ears are trained for. Like I'm responsible for this revenue line. I'm responsible for this particular outcome for this business. And so that is the story has to lead there. I think there are two ways to go about this storytelling piece. I think there's pain and suffering. There's the pain relief. Like look at how inefficient our current process is because our tool or platform is so bad. And look at, look at this missed opportunity. Yeah, And then there's like the vision of the future. Like if you, and I think execs really, really connect to this, like painting them a picture of the future of the business, the two, three year, right? Because the good execs are living in that space. They're looking ahead two, three years. Where are we driving toward? Like they're looking up at the horizon, right? Painting a picture of a place that's more effective and better. And this particular project being clearly along that road is critical, and hard to do, really hard to do, especially when you're when you're closer to the ground.
0: If I could pick one word to kind of sum up what you just said, Gina, it would be value. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the value of the work? And the value is not yeah. only the deliverables. The value is not only the thing that's going to launch. The value is also not even only, oh, the thing is going to generate this much revenue or save this much money. Value to the business is a much more holistic story about how the future is going to be different. And one of the ways to think about this is that if you can say a sentence with the following construction, you are probably talking about value. And the sentence would be something like, we believe we need to do X because Y so that the so that is so important. Mm-hmm. It, it, it go. It takes you that one level deeper. If you can't, if you don't have a so that, or some cases a so what, right? But in the context of one continuous idea, if you can't drive towards a so that at the end of your pitch or your proposal or your recommendation, then you haven't thought it through enough, and you probably haven't explained as comprehensively as you could what the real value of the effort is going to be. One of the situations that we often run into in our role is that usually if a client's coming to us, they or their bosses don't need to be convinced to work with an agency partner at a basic level, right? Because they're out there. But when it comes to building software, what often happens is is someone comes in and says, "Here's everything going on with our business. Here's what we think we need. Let's talk about how we might build a solution." Then they will learn that the solution they need is either gonna take longer or cost more. It's, they didn't fully know what they were getting themselves into, which is common. I mean, that's the whole point of the, of the experience. I mean, sometimes it's like a bullseye, maybe if, you're, if it's a highly technical project and it's the CTO is coming in the door or something. But if it's more of a cross-functional team or it's a different discipline, it's often about making the case for, well, we know we wanted to do this, but actually boss, it's gonna cost 30% more than we were hoping. Here's why we should do it because X, so that Y, right? And so often we're joining the story in the middle and we have to get up to speed very quickly and drive towards that, the so that. You have to help people imagine how the future is going to be completely different.
1: Yeah, I mean, software is expensive. I mean, people get sticker shocked by these big projects a lot. There's another interesting thing that happens, which is like, well, why can't we do this in-house? To save money or is this is this a vote of no comp i mean going outside to an agency is like is this what about our people like our people aren't able to do this i think sometimes even internal engineering teams feel a little insulted like why would you go out why could not we prioritize this work that's also a challenging you know question to answer but it it requires like some real talk and honesty about the fact that you know freeing up resources to focus on on a particular project that you know, on an already over-allocated team is sometimes just unrealistic. Sometimes in-house teams don't have the distance that an outside, you know, partner has, or you know, just needs to be in a in a little bit of a separate culture and work cadence to ship, right? Because shipping is is the whole Yeah. One.
2: As you're talking, I have a picture in my head about the kind of organization you're talking about. Do you have like, is there a reference point that you're thinking about when you're talking about this sort of like distance or space? Between an internal engineering team and an external one.
1: I mean, I'm thinking about (laughs) names of clients are definitely flashing through my head who shall (laughs) me too. (laughs) Who shall remain unnamed? I think that this is. I think this is a really common pattern, and I think that sometimes, you know, internal engineering teams, particularly in an org that isn't digital first or isn't technology first, can fall into. Bad habits, or slow cultures, or you know, they just aren't able to rally around an effort on a short timeline. I mean, this is you know, yeah. when you work with a partner, you say this is the deliverable and this is the date, and if they don't deliver, right? Like we know this <laughs> because this is our entire business. But internal, it's like, well, this other thing got prioritized, and so and so went on leave, and well, you know, like there's always sort of a reason or excuse for something to get deprioritized, or it just doesn't have that that energy. It's easier for it not to have that energy, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the ways that I think about this, and this, I apologize in advance because this will perhaps be a strained metaphor, but hiring a partner like Postlight is kind of a form of tax evasion, by which I mean. <laughs> With internal teams, where are you going? Yeah, this question? is that was
1: an don't amazing worry. statement. <laughs> yeah,
0: don't worry. With internal teams, especially technical teams, there are a lot of taxes that add up over time. You've got technical debt. You have people who are over allocated. You have people who have lots of responsibilities. Cross functional teams. And when you go and you work with an agency like ours, what you're saying is our team is paying so much tax right now internally that there's just no there's nothing left in order to go and build this huge core initiative. So let's let's go to a different part of the world where there are no taxes for us because we can bring this team in, we can give them a no fail mission and everything is much more straightforward. I think it's, it's valuable to be able to tell your bosses or your stakeholders, to your point Gina, here's why our internal team is not a good fit for this. And maybe it's not about capability or qualifications at all because often, We have clients come to us with extremely high-performing technical or design teams of their own. They just can't take on the work right now, and they're honest about that, right? And that's an amazing situation because at the end of the day, we want to work with clients for a long time, but nobody works with post-light forever. And eventually, as we build these Ferraris and these aircraft carriers and spaceships for people, we have to hand them off to a team that can Mm -hmm. handle the care and feeding of these platforms in the future that relationship and that dynamic of preparing for the handoff is really important and that's why it's rarely is it about the actual qualifications of an internal team it's more about well they're overtaxed they're paying too many taxes and so coming to work with an outside partner is a release valve or a form of tax avoidance temporarily and then when the platform is ready we can do a handoff and help them sail off into the future
2: I think that's beautifully said. Again, we've had this conversation amongst us as we're talking with people. You know, I don't know that we've said the phrase tax evasion before, Michael, uh, (laughs) on a recorded Twitter space. Sorry about that. But organizations, especially the longer you're around and the bigger you get, bad habits can kind of calcify within a team. And you just sort of learn, well, this is the speed we go at. Or we're never going to be great at design. And so we'll ju- we're just going to kind of do the best we can and make incremental change. And one of the ways that, you know, if you're a, let's say, a VP of product or an SVP of technology who's, who's out there and you're sitting in this environment where you're like, man, I just can't go as fast as I want to go. Or, you know, to Gina's point earlier, I see the vision, but I don't know how to get there. One of the ways you can do it and get buy-in from the, from the execs at the top level is to say, we need to shake things up. And we do need to bring in a group who's going to be held to different standards and also not have to be beholden to the things that are slowing us down right now, whether that be the day-to-day or whether it be like something as fundamental as like a technology choice, right? What language are we writing? Or for design, like what design system are we using? Those things can get questioned when you bring in an outside shop and you give them the flexibility to say, let's, you know, let's think about
0: what we're doing from first principles. Yeah. I mean, you said something really important, which is holding the outside group, for example, postlight, to different standards so that we can gradually change or evolve or increase the standards within our own organization. I mean, this goes back to that idea of value. So yes, we're going to deliver the platform. But if you you know, working in your company believe that a culture change is needed or that a shock to the system is required to really reach the next level of achievement, that can be part of the value of bringing in a neutral expert outside partner. Another way that we do that, something that I'm a huge fan of, is not just competitive analysis as part of your your pitch to your bosses, but out-of-category analysis to show stakeholders and leaders where where the opportunity space in your world is and how it aligns with what what you want to do. I really believe firmly, and I think our teams believe this too, that Expectations for digital platforms in terms of user expectations, these are shaped by common experiences that we all have regardless of category. So regardless of whether you're in insurance or you're a D2C company or you're working in retail or e-commerce, you can use businesses that are doing amazing things that are analogous to what you want to achieve in totally different business environments as part of that shock to the system to make your case. And that I have found that that can be an incredibly powerful storytelling technique that can really drive a lot of, a lot of persuasion.
1: I love the Shockton system phrase that, that Michael would say, I, you know, it's like, I was talking to a friend of mine who worked at a big org with a huge software platform, tons of partners, all this data. She was in the product org and um, we were talking and she casually mentioned that they did a release every six months. And I said, Excuse me? Oh,
2: boy. Oh, no. I said six
1: weeks? She said, no, no. We do a release every six months. So for six months, they're prepping and doing a release. That release cadence is... It's very, very, very slow. Now, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pass blanket judgment. It depends on the org, depends on the needs, but that is a very, very slow release cadence. And in our world, I mean, our, our engagements are typically six, nine, twelve months. Like we would necessarily have to say that does not work for us. We're we're gonna right. we're gonna set up this new lane over here. We're gonna be doing you know weekly, but maybe probably daily releases because that's that's how software gets made. And part of this, like the what we need to do is show you you know, software coming to life as we work and getting feedback and iterating it, you know, and that would be a huge shock, right, to that system and, and hopefully a healthy one. But it's really hard when you're internal. For her, she'd be like, you know, I really think that we should speed up this release cycle. So like, well, this is how we do it. And here are all the reasons why. And here are all the layers of, of, you know, testing and QA and user acceptance that we have to go through, you know, over the course of months in order to get this done. Like that is a very difficult tide to change. Internally, yeah. it's almost impossible to do it internally, um, unless you have like the entire engineering group, you know, band together and say we're not going to do six releases every six months. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's, it's important to calibrate around what is possible within an organization, and then come with a plan that can push them ten percent beyond that. Because certainly, at organizations that are that have that much taxes, that much bureaucracy, matrixed, whatever your you know your term of choice is. The truth is it's all proportional and so a 10% improvement in velocity can pay massive massive returns inside of a massive massive organization. Yes. So it's also important to sort of scale the vision that you're sharing with your boss, executive stakeholder leader proportionally with the reality of your of your situation and then turn the dial just a little bit further. You don't wanna bring science fiction into the room. You wanna be able to say, this is real, this is straightforward, we should do this because of this, so that X. Mm-hmm. All proportional to the reality that you're in. And working with a partner like Postlight, a good partner will be able to help you calibrate that message appropriately. I wanna make a somewhat, or share a somewhat related but
2: distinct thought, which is, which is more tactical, right? We're talking a lot about Sort of where you go, how you structure these, these vision statements. But there's another thing that I think we've found really effective that is helpful to share, which is literally painting the picture. Like sometimes you gotta design it even before yes. you get buy-in for the full picture, right? Execs love seeing the thing, even if it's not high fidelity, you know, visual, you know, perfect, pixel perfect designs. If you can show a wireframe or a design direction, um, even sometimes just a mood board that say, you know, here's where you can go. I mean, the, the holy grail is if you can get a designer to spend a couple weeks in Figma and make like a clickable prototype that really shows, you know, a, a user journey or a particular set of user journeys, it just makes it 10,000 times easier for someone who is looking across all these various tracks to sit with you for 45 minutes or an hour And get a very clear sense of exactly what you want to go do and why, you know, greenlighting a budget, what it will get them. And this has been huge for us. I mean, this is something we do now. Obviously, we're a group of product strategists, product managers, designers, and engineers. So this is part of the work when we sign on a new client. But even before we come to an agreement with a prospect, we will sometimes put together these design prototypes and say, here's how we're thinking this takes shape. It's not a production-ready design. It's not ready to be handed over to engineers and start building, but it really clearly shows you yeah. where you're going to go, and it just makes it that much easier to say. Is yes.
1: it is it risky? Is it risky to show execs the wireframes or mood boards or even a high fidelity? We always get like a little bit of pushback, like whoa, 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 we don't want to make any promises, and doesn't exec know how to fill in what a wireframe is? Right, this is always a concern.
0: Yeah, you have that goes back to tailoring your message. There are some yes. clients I've worked with who should never be shown wireframes, <laughs> and that's there's, it's not. A, that's not. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Like that's. It's fine, right? Because our our job is to communicate effectively, not just to communicate. And for the right audience, nothing is going to communicate faster than visuals. Yes. But it has to be calibrated correctly and... You know, you have to make the right judgment calls about how much time or effort to invest to get to what fidelity to achieve the outcome that you want.
1: There's not always, but often there's that one stakeholder who's like who looks at wireframes and says, "But where are all the colors? Can't we add colors?" And you- are we changing? Our, are we changing our brand we- to just be? Black and white and
0: gray. This has happened more than once in my career. It's totally okay. Or like, you can we smile build that?
1: Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah, we can do colors. <laughs> it's true. But this is the thing. If you frame it correctly and say, this is- It's this how is you a frame con- it. it's, it's about framing. This is a concept. It's off the top. There's a lot more work to do, but here's a look at what's potentially possible. And I agree that looking at screens that, you know, where someone is pressing a button and getting a thing done is so much more powerful than any amount of text.
2: I mean, it sounds silly to say it this way, but like it paints a picture in a way that reading a document can't.
1: In fact, the detail
2: almost works against you. (laughs) Like, I think what you want, what you want to do, if you don't have designs and you're doing it in words, like keep it brief, keep it high level. Here's again, orient around business outcomes. Here's what you're going to get if we go down this path. And that's it. Like super simple and succinct is the way to go here. It's sort of counterintuitive. Because I think people earlier in their careers are like, oh, I got to really make the case here. So I'm going to show a lot of my work to make it clear why we have to go do this. But actually, if it's concise, but compelling, that's what's going to get it to unlock.
1: Yep. I have a question for the two of you. There's a certain kind of project that can't have like the splashy prototype. It's actually maybe not even new software. It is just... It's replatforming, mm. it's modernizing and speeding up and making a, a platform just easier to maintain. It's expressing the, you know, the advantages of having a design system or the advantages of de- decoupling the back end from yeah. the front end. And it's, it's selling maintainability. It's essentially future proofing a platform so that you can build on it and do more with it. But it feels, you know, I think from a CFO's perspective or even a CEO's perspective is like, wait, we're spending all this money and we're not actually getting anything new. It's just the same thing rewritten hmm. and maybe just like a little faster. Like, do we, yeah. do we need to spend that money? How do you express paying back tech debt or making, you know, a platform just stable and maintainable and, and future ready?
0: It's a really important question. And I think that it, it comes down to explaining cost and the different kinds of cost. There is a marginal cost to doing this invisible backend work. And there's a, an opportunity cost to not doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's on a long enough timeline. And if your leaders have vision, they'll be thinking on pretty long timelines, amortizing the you know, the cost of doing this work now and showing that it's going to pay for itself versus the opportunity cost of not doing it is a laborious but straightforward exercise. And because sometimes it really should just come down to the numbers. But there are lots of things to consider in numbers. It's not just vendor costs or the cost of maintenance. It's also what are the costs of employee morale, retention. If people are working on broken systems for 40 plus hours a week, is it harder to retain them? How much does it cost to replace an employee? What is our standing in the marketplace? Did the current platform result in downtime that cost the company money or had a reputational cost? So quantifying the opportunity cost of not doing the thing, especially when it's an an invisible platform that doesn't get a lot of glory, is essential to showing that it is worth The investment.
2: Yeah, there's one
0: one other kind of, you know, it'sn't high on people's lists of like, oh,
2: I can't wait to do this in my in my org, but it's one of the things that turns the wheel, which is turning off other systems. (laughs) And if you can show how your you know maintenance work allows, you know, five other platforms to be decommissioned, there's real value there.
0: Bosses love to consolidate. Oh, yeah. They love to turn things off. And so do I. It's so gratifying, right? I mean, that's that's huge.
2: Again, there needs to be a rationale behind it, but often you can you can think about it and, and there can be a win-win here, right? If you say, well, we want to take our flash-based platform to a React-based platform, which by the way is something we've actually worked on in the past few years for one of our clients, and say in the and in the interim, we can, you know, modernize, not in the interim, but alongside this work, we can modernize your backend so that you can turn off, you know, this antiquated admin interface that no one enjoys using it becomes that much of a stronger case. So look at the whole landscape and how you can improve it, you know, for your team as you were saying Michael, which is great, but also maybe for other things that uh, are related.
0: The other piece of sort of tactical advice I would offer is that you know, at least before the pandemic when there were lots of conferences and things happening and and now, you know, we're pretty well adapted to this, but before then, your peers, other product leaders, design leaders, business owners uh, would go to conferences and they would talk about how successful they've been and the decisions and projects that led to that success. Often those talks get published and they write great slides and they share metrics and data about what moved the needle in your business or in their business, sorry. And so if you need to make a case to a boss, one of the best things you can do is fire up your search engine of choice. I like uh, DuckDuckGo myself and go and find some of these talks because the proof both within your industry and outside of it, the empirical proof is out there. You know, we undertook a massive audit of our checkout flow, and we found hands down that when we reduced the number of steps from 12 to 4, revenue increased by 20-something percent, et cetera. I mean, I remember earlier in my career, Hotel Tonight, the app for booking a last-minute hotel, they put a lot of effort into this. And this was years ago now, so I don't use this anymore because it's out of date. But there was a leader at Hotel Tonight gave a fantastic talk about how they optimized the user experience in the app, and they shared some great data. And that was a very powerful tool for me, I'll be honest, to help people tell stories effectively when they're challenges and opportunities were analogous to what Hotel Tonight had accomplished. So go and look for real case studies because they are out there. You have to do some searching, but they are 100% out there because people love to talk about and explain their own success. Uh, And that can be really valuable to sort of place an aspiration or a request for funding in real economic context. It'll make it feel real and believable.
1: This is really great advice because the truth is you want to make this decision as easy as possible on the decision maker. And you have to assume the decision maker is in, you know, meeting number 11 of you know, 18 that day, you know, the decision maker, once they say, yes, I'm signing off on this large budget to go ahead and do this thing, like they're putting their neck on the line. Right. And so it it has to be super clear to them. Like, this is the right thing to do. If they're like, "Mm, I don't know a lot of money. I can't see that. Like, it's not going to, it's not going to work well for you. And it's not going to put them in the best position. I think that, you know, Michael, you always emphasize the power of, of storytelling and the statement so that, you know, we can do this is so powerful. And I think, you know, I know, especially in, you know, I come from the engineering world where, you know, making decks or, or telling stories is not really <laughs> not part of my, of my daily, my daily responsibilities, but it really like is so powerful. And it's such a big part of this part of like, fl- you know, floating this idea and getting sign off and getting buy-in and being able to move forward with a big, important effort.
0: Yeah, that's totally, it's totally true. If you're not a storyteller, you will always be at the mercy of someone else's decisions. Mm -hmm. It's someone else's
1: narrative and someone else's, yes, it's true. If if any of this was interesting
2: and you have a project that you're thinking about getting buy-in for or might want to talk to an agency uh, to help, we're the perfect partner. Reach out at hello at postlight.com. We are, again, a team of 120 strong product managers, designers, and engineers who like to build big, complex internet platforms. We are design-driven we lead with design and we have amazing engineering shops to back it up and we ship. We'd love to promise a date when we uh, sign an agreement with somebody and then hit that date or ideally come in a little ahead of time. We are super excited to have a number of clients across industries, uh, all company shapes and sizes. And if you think you have a project that, that you might need help with, reach out and we'd love to talk to you. Gina, what else? What did I miss? It's
1: true, honestly. You know, if you're working on something interesting and ambitious and big and complex, and you want to just talk it through, come talk to us. Because even if you're, if you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to go outside, if I'm going to do this inside. We love like talking through complicated problems that involve technology, and just we ha- are in a particular position where we get to look across industries and across businesses of different sizes, and we see different patterns emerging. And look, we'll give us, uh, we'll give you our take. We'll give, we'll give you our best advice, and we'll. You know, help you help you get that sign off that you're looking to get because this is what we do. This is what we love to do. So you can always reach out to us. Hello at postlight.com. We're also obviously on on Twitter. Uh, you know where to find us there and reach out. We love talking through this stuff because there's a lot of really bad software out there <laughs> and a lot of and a lot of really great platforms that have yet to be built. And we just yes. uh, love being part of that conversation. Thanks everybody for coming to listen to our very first Twitter Space. It was weird. It was super fun. Really great to see uh pieces pop up we may have to do this again sometime and thank everybody. you michael and chris was thanks really for coming fun. y'all yeah
0: thank likewise you. bye everybody bye bye